Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today are Martin Arnold, our banking editor, Caroline Binham, our financial regulation correspondent, and Laura Noonan, our investment banking correspondent. Down the line from the New York office is Ben McClanahan, our US banking editor, and we have a guest, Jean-Pierre Mustier, who is the new chief executive of Italy's Unicredit. Today, we'll be discussing the latest results from the US banks, particularly Goldman Sachs. A look then at Unicredit as Mr. Mustier takes charge of Italy's biggest bank, And finally, what will Brexit cost the banking system? The latest report from BCG. First, though, to Ben in New York. You're right on the earnings call, I gather, with Goldman Sachs. On the face of it, the results look pretty good, but the shares haven't really moved. Give us a line or two on your impressions of the second quarter numbers from Goldman. Yeah, you're right. Year on year, there's a big improvement because uh, there was that big charge for mortgage-backed securities related litigation a year ago. So, yeah, on that metric, things look good. But overall, you've still got revenues dropping, what, 13% year on year. This bank is shrinking. Hence the muted response, I suppose, from the market. They did have quite a decent time on the M&A front and debt underwriting, I think. Yeah, those two line items look pretty good year on year. There was a bit of improvement. And also the bond trading unit, the fixed income currencies, the commodities unit, which has been the cause of so much grief and anxiety from senior executives over the past few years amid all that tighter regulation on that shift to electronic trading. That did better too. That was consistent with results from Tilton Morgan Chase, Citigroup and Bank of America. But overall, as I think we can see from the share price movement, this isn't really blowing the lights out for Goldman. And just, you alluded to a couple of the other banks that have been reporting, but the broader mood on Wall Street at the moment is muted, is it? I think muted is a good way of putting it. As I put in the top line of my second take on the news this morning, this is the fourth quarter in a row for Goldman Sachs who had single-digit returns on equity. And this is the bank, remember, in the mid-2000s that was regularly producing mid-20s ROEs. Now we've had four in a row of less than 10. So I think the attention of analysts this morning will be on exactly what the bank can to do to get back to mid-teens. I think that, that will be the good jumping off point for Lloyd Blankstein. Now, 10 years into the job, he really wants to get Goldman's RV back to where it used to be. Or maybe that's the new normal. We'll see. It certainly doesn't bode well for the European banks. Thanks, Ben. I'll let you get back to the earnings call. Well, on that rather downbeat note from the US, let's get even more downbeat, Martin. Let's go to Italy, where there is almost a fully-fledged banking crisis. You've been talking to Jean-Pierre Mustier, who's just arrived as the new chief executive of the biggest bank in Italy. What did you make of his plans and what are you inheriting, really? 
Well, he laid out his vision for Unicredit, but also his take on the state of the Italian banking sector. And particularly interesting was his comparison of the delicate situation that Italy finds itself in, in trying to shore up its banks and their weak balance sheets. And the comparison he drew between that and the French government bailout of Alstom, the transport and engineering company that he was involved with personally when he was a corporate banker at Societe Generale. And the point he's making there is that there needs to be a fine line between respecting the single European banking market rules, which prevent a state bailout of banks since the start of this year, with the particular situation in Italy, where because many retail investors hold the bonds that would be bailed in under those rules, and therefore huge losses imposed on those retail investors, which is politically unpalatable, you need to try and find a balance between those two competing interests. So yeah, let's just hear in a little bit more detail what Mr. Mustier had to say about the macro picture as he finds in Italy. I restructured a certain number of corporate companies in my life as a corporate banker. And I remember a case of a, a very large company where the, if you were looking just at the financial action, the company would have been dismantled because uh, people are saying, OK, you know, we need to restructure, so we need to sell assets. We need to... And so that was the pure financial way. Things were done and the state intervened to a certain extent and, and took actions. And then the company rebounded and you know, kept the jobs and actually went out of its uh, problems mm. and thrived afterwards. And so it was Alstom, taking the yeah. example of Alstom. If you take the right actions, and taking the right actions is not, not taking actions. You see, there's a, yeah. a difference between, oh, give us time and uh, not doing anything, <laughs> or you know, let's uh, take actions, but let's uh, you know, understand that uh, you know, time when you deal with human being is necessary, basically. So, you know, there's a difference between not doing anything and doing things, yes. and, but, you know, giving time. Then the outcome can be more favorable for society in general. Yes. And so, you know, I think we need today to walk a fine line, which is extremely difficult to define between, on one side, the need to protect, if I may say, the, the core concept of the banking union, because that's uh, you know, yes. an extremely important uh, uh, decision for Europe. And the fact that uh, you know, we, we need some kind of uh, political decision to, to um, uh, take into account that we have a specific situation which uh, might not be solved in an optimal way if you just apply the, the pure rule. So at one stage, it needs to be a combination of a regulatory setup and probably a political decision, which needs to be a European political decision. And then, Martin, you went on, I think, to ask him about the particular issues at Unicredit and what prospects he felt there were for getting to grips with things very quickly. I think when we look at our non-performing loan portfolio, and the team is working on that, and we had a series of meetings since I arrived last week, and uh, uh, this morning uh, we continue that. We're looking at what can be the right approach, which is a mix of uh, proper provisioning and provisioning because of the fundamental credit value and provisioning because uh, 
you know, one might be willing to pass a message to the market that, you know, we are taking things seriously and we might have, uh, you know, pockets that we feel, you know, should be sold just to prove that we have a provision at the market clearing price. So it's a, yeah. you know, it's a mix of uh, that and uh, which is not regulatory driven, but it's much more, how can we convince investors that uh, we move forcefully and convincingly, okay? So, Monday night, I told the team, let's uh, sell a steak in Fineco. Last night, yeah. we sold a steak in uh, Pecao. Tonight, we are having dinner and we're not selling anything, just in case. You <laughs> <laughs> so, Martin, yeah, he's made a very quick start. Do you think he's on the right track? Well, Rachel Sanderson, the Milan correspondent at the FT, and, and I saw him only two days into his new job. And he's already, as he said there, you know, sold more than a billion euros worth of assets. And he's putting in train a process whereby they can start to address the large non-performing loan portfolio the problems that they have. But he's got a lot of issues to deal with. I think that the market is confident and the shares in Unicredit have gone up last week. And so he's made a, a positive early impression, but he's got his hands full. And I think the biggest danger for him is the wider context of the whole banking system and the weakness there. And if there is a crisis in Italian banking, then Unicredit is not in the strongest position to cope with that. So he needs to work fast. He knows that. He's doing all the right things, I think, as far as the investors are concerned, but he needs to get on with it. He needs to hope that there isn't an external shock that undermines it. Well, we'll watch that very closely. Let's move on to our third topic. And inevitably, we're coming back to Brexit Laura, you've been looking at an interesting report from the consultants at BCG, which puts a pretty dramatic headline figure on what Brexit is going to cost. Yeah, so BCG looked at the cost of Brexit from the perspective of the EU-based banks who are effectively currently accessing the UK through branches. So because their home company is in the EU, they don't have to have a separately capitalised company here. So what the BCG report looked at was in the event that these banks were actually told that they had to set up a separately capitalised company in the UK to carry out their business here, how much would that cost them? And they said that that could lead the banks to having to put an additional 30 to £40 billion pounds into their operations in the UK. Now, that isn't to say that these banks need to actually go out to raise that. I mean, some of these banks do have excess capital at the parent company level. But it certainly would mean they have less flexibility on the capital front and it would increase the running costs of the UK operations by quite a bit. And that number is arrived at looking at European banks only or does it include the number for US banks who are headquarter their European operations here in London? The whole reason that this actually arises is because you're currently accessing the UK market through a branch. And you can only do that if your head office is in another EU country. So in the case of the US banks, they aren't accessing the UK market by a branch. They already actually have fully capitalised companies here. So it really is only an issue for these 60 or so European banks. And if we look at those, most of the costs will be spread across the largest 10 or so. They estimate that, that the cost for the German banks alone will be around 10 billion. So there's an interesting angle, isn't it? Because a lot of our focus, certainly up to now, has been on the US banks using London as a kind of jump off point into the EU and what disruption that could cause if that so-called passporting right is not available. But this is looking from the other side, the EU banks. I think the kind of key point is that both sets of banks do face different challenges, but they both face very large challenges. So the thing about the passporting is it works both ways. So in the case of the US banks, they are using the UK to access passporting out. In the case of the EU banks, they are using their home market to access passporting in. So in the event that we didn't have any passporting in the future, it would have a very large impact on both of those two groups of banks. 
Interesting. Martin, do you want to come in? Yeah, Sam Woods, the new head of the Prudential Regulation Authority, was being questioned by MPs in Parliament today. And he said, you know, there are 66 European banks that branch into the UK and 24 that go the other way. And it's even bigger numbers for insurers, 79 coming in and 41 UK ones going out into Europe. So this is a really big issue in both directions. There's a lot of unpicking to do. And then finally, while we're on the regulatory front, Caroline, you've been looking at what the conduct regulator, the FCA, has had to say about Brexit. Yeah, so it was the FCA's annual meeting on Tuesday. That meant it was the first public comments that we've heard from Andrew Bailey since he took up his job as CEO of the FCA, which happened just a week after the Brexit vote. So unsurprisingly, anything he said about Brexit has been jumped upon. He said that he supports the new Chancellor, Philip Hammond's statement that the UK should seek access to the single market, but also he urged the government to make new arrangements across the world basically saying that it helped the FCA achieve its objective of healthy competition. And he was quick to say that the FCA set up its own Brexit team and that unlike the government that's currently having to scrabble around for anyone with experience in trade negotiations, in terms of these equivalence standards that we've been hearing so much about, that the FCA, it's the stuff of life, he said, I think. Very good. Well, that's it for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank Martin, Laura and Caroline here in the studio. Thank you also to Ben in New York and apologies for the poor quality of his line. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon. Until next week, goodbye. <laughs>